0: 17, verses 22 through 27. So, we're entering the last six months of Jesus' um, earthly ministry, and we've noticed him you know, spending more time with the disciples, less time with the multitudes, and he is you know, pouring into them, preparing them for uh, his departure. The tension between the religious authorities and between Jesus at this time was just super intense. Um, you know, violent. You know, they wanted to get rid of him at this point. And the disciples, you can imagine, following some teacher where it's like the whole religious establishment like wants to take him out, and it's been pretty intense. Um, we're just coming out of that scene where that father came with the demon-possessed son. The disciples couldn't take care of the situation. Jesus rebuked them all, rebuked the demon, came out, healed the kid, and um, that was immediately before this. And so now. Um, Moving on, this is the last six months of Jesus' earthly ministry. The expectation of the Messiah at this time um, was that he would bring immediate deliverance from like the Roman, you know, authorities from the establishment. That was the expectation of the Messiah at this time. They thought he would be like a military type of conqueror, you know, all the disciples and and all the Jews. They thought this is what the Messiah was going to be. He was going to come and there was going to be essentially this like battle and this showdown and he was just going to wipe everybody out uh, that was against the Jews. And that's what they thought the Messiah would do. So like the disciples are probably at this point thinking, Jesus, like, when's this going to happen here? Come on, you know, like uh, let's get after it. And as they hoped and anticipated that Jesus would fulfill their dreams, he kept talking about this uncomfortable truth that he was going to die violently and resurrect from the grave. As the disciples had all the hopes for what they wanted Jesus to do, Jesus kept bringing them back to the cross. This... Uncomfortable truth. So uncomfortable. You remember the first time it was recorded in Matthew, Peter just was offended by the thing and just rebuked Jesus. Remember he pulled him aside. Jesus, this will never happen to you. Jesus keeps bringing up this uncomfortable truth more and more now as it gets closer to the cross. He's trying to prepare them. He's trying to say, uh, this is the destiny of the Messiah. And all they're hearing is military conqueror. He's going to just wipe everybody out. They got an idea for Jesus. Um, he doesn't fit their idea, so he keeps finding it necessary to bring him back to this uncomfortable truth. Now, the cross isn't what they wanted to hear about, and that's not unlike people today, right? I mean, many people have an expectation of Jesus, and they want Jesus for all kinds of different things in their life. And increasingly, as a culture, we're getting more and more like, I don't really want to talk about that sin and blood and death cross thing. I don't want to hear about that. You know, Tell me about abundance. Tell me about prosperity. Tell me about living the best life now that I can live. Tell me about how I can use Jesus to have a better marriage. Tell me about how I can have Jesus to have a better finances. Tell me about how I can have Jesus to have the, the, all my dreams come true, all the desires of my heart. Tell me about that, Jesus. Don't tell me about this Jesus that dies. Um, I don't want to hear about blood in church. This is... You know, it's maybe some of you are thinking that right now. Oh, here he goes. again He's to talk about blood, uh, you know, and uh, I'll tell you what, you read the book of Acts and you read the sermons that were in the book of Acts and the sermons were about the crucifixion. Uh, in fact, in Acts chapter two, uh, Peter says to a whole group of Jews here, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, um, you know, this Jesus that you, that just died, um, all of you guys killed him and that was God, <laughs> you know? Talk about a seeker-sensitive church service. You know what I mean? <laughs> Peter's like, yeah, all of you guys, you killed Jesus. Uh, you know, uh, He's your Messiah. Uh, and then what did they do? They said, there was the, so they were pricked to the heart, their consciences, and they are like, oh, my gosh, what did we do? And they repented, and the Lord added to the number, uh, the church that day, a bunch of people got saved because they stood up and, and Peter, pre- Peter preached the gospel, right? And so Jesus, same thing, he keeps taking their mind back to the cross. Now... He reminds them of this inconvenient truth in our passage today. There are actually two things in this passage that we need to remember today. Um, And I didn't really cut the text. I kind of cut it in a weird spot last time. So um, there are two subjects in this passage that I think we need to be reminded. and, And maybe there's a connection to them. I'm not going to try to force a connection to them. Uh, The first subject, verses 22 through 23, Jesus reminding them of the cross and the resurrection. Second subject, 24 through 27, uh, we need to be reminded of our citizenship of earth and in heaven. You ever heard that as a Christian, you have dual citizenship? Yeah, you live on the earth, but you're actually a citizen of heaven, and that can cause some weird issues to be a dual citizen. Like, how am I supposed to live here in this earth now that I'm a citizen of heaven? And so being reminded of the death, death and resurrection and being reminded that you're a citizen of earth and heaven. See now, if you're a rapper, you can turn that into a song right now, and we'll we'll make an album, and there we go. So, first of all, verse 22. He reminds them of his death and resurrection. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus, Jesus said to them, "The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up." And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Heavenly Father, as we get into your word today, Lord, we do pray that you'd make the book speak to us and live. Lord Jesus, help us to hear what the Spirit says to the church. And it's our heart, Father, to submit to your word. We receive it as the very words of God, the the scriptures that were um, written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, help us. Teach us today. Speak to us the things we would need to hear. Strengthen us in our faith, Lord. Strengthen us in our walk with you, that we might honor you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, so after a week in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and the disciples now come back to the Galilee. It's a familiar place. There are supporters there. There are critics. Tension has increased. And then Jesus said to them, now Jesus is about to remind them again of the cross and resurrection. How important though uh, is that? Because you know, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Luke 24, um, you know, after the crucifixion in Luke 24 verse 8, Um, there's a time where the the disciples were reminded again, you know, like, you know, they were sorrowful and it was like, Hey, he's going to rise from the grave. And it says, and they remembered his words, like, alluding to the fact that even all the way to the end, even to the crucifixion, the resurrection, they still, like, this just did not register with them, you know, and that happens when you're so set on seeing Jesus a certain way, the Bible can tell you things straight about Jesus, but you're so set on seeing what you wanna see that it just doesn't ever set in, and so it's a good thing that um, Jesus reminded him. In Luke's account of this passage, it says this, Jesus in quotes, let these words sink down into your ears. You remember when he says that in Luke? Let these words get in there. You know? Now, he brings this unpleasant truth up a lot now, preparing the disciples for the reality of living for him after he's gone. He says, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Jesus told them of his crucifixion, of his death earlier. Um, but now he adds a couple of things. He adds the, um, you know, the elements of you know, he's going to be betrayed That's something new that he's revealing. And he also adds their response that they were sorrowful. Where he says, son of man, the son of man is about to be betrayed. That's a term used 88 times in the New Testament. So it's an important term. And what it is, is it's a term that speaks of four things, at least. One of them, Jesus' humanity. Another one, his humility. Another one, his deity, And the last one, it speaks of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. All of those things are wrapped up in the term son of man. Humanity, humility, deity, and that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, if you do a word study on that term in the Bible, you'll get all these different verses and then it'll illuminate what I'm saying there. Where it says he's going to be betrayed, the Greek word has to do with being given over or being handed over. It's referring to Judas' betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, could be prophesied in the book of Zechariah um, about this 30 pieces of silver. This was warning enough for the disciples at this point, right, including Judas. Um, Jesus is saying to them, hey, I'm about to be betrayed. They should have started doing some self-examination. I wonder if it's me. Um, But he lays it right out there. Um, I want to just bring out a point right here when it says that Jesus was betrayed, because I think that in a room full of this many people, at least one of you or two maybe have been betrayed at a certain point in your life, (laughs) you know, and somebody is like legitimately just, you know, you didn't do anything. They turn their back on you. I want you to be comforted by the fact that when you hear and when you remember that Jesus was betrayed, this is a guy that came only to do good. For people, This is a guy that only came to save and to heal and to do good things. And yet, people hated him for who he was. And, uh, you know, and he was betrayed. And so I just want you to know that if you go through betrayal or you feel betrayed, um, you're in good company with Jesus. You need to look to Jesus and say, you know, um, he understands my pain. I have a friend in Jesus that can understand what it's like when people you know, turn their back on you and, and throw you under the bus and say things about you that are you know, not true or whatever it would be. It goes on in verse 23 uh, and says, they will kill him. This is talking about the crucifixion. Now, interesting that Jesus says, you know, they will kill him. He knew. I bring that up because the cross was not an accident, right? You have to think about this today for a second. The cross was not an accident. It was an intentional thing uh, that Jesus did. It did not take him by surprise. Jesus Christ purposefully died for the intention of saving Jesus. The people that he came to save. He purposefully died. Uh, It wasn't like uh, plan B. This was the plan. And and it's interesting to just really let that sink down into your ears and to just really think about that. That this man came to die uh, for you. For me. He came to do this for us. It's pretty interesting. Another thing that just kind of... I mean, it's Sunday morning, but this will blow your mind a little bit. It blows my mind. Just to think about the sovereignty of God, right? If this is the plan... But yet all these evil people, all these evil men, they thought, you know, hey, we're doing something. We've got him. We're doing all this. And they think they've got this plan that's going. And, and their plan is actually fulfilling God's plan. And, and how can that be? I don't know. I mean, y- you say, this is God. He's sovereign. He's over all things. Listen, if you ever doubted the fact that God's in control, just look at the cross. I mean, Here you have evil men thinking that they're doing whatever they would do, whatever they want to do, but they're actually doing what God, they're like chess pieces, right? So maybe you've forgotten that God's in control of all things. I can't wrap my mind around how this works. I don't know. I mean, but I know that God is mighty. I know that God's in control of all things. I know I can rest in that today, that he's in control, right? Now, where it says, and they killed him in verse 23. That word they, I couldn't get a word from that word they while I was studying this week because the question, who killed Jesus, right? Now, this has been a subject of great controversy throughout the years. In fact, many people have been like demonized and, you know, uh, let's put it this way we have some ugly history in our church family past of people persecuting Jews because it was like, oh, you Jews, you killed Christians, uh, or you killed Jesus, right? And uh, we have some ugly, dark history in the church of people persecuting the Jews because of this question, who killed Jesus, right? And so we'll answer it today, who killed Jesus, because this is, man, if you get anything out of this sermon today, you know, I think this is an important piece. I think it's all important, but boy. First of all, it's another four-part answer. We already had a four-part answer to that other thing, Son of Man. Here's another one. Um, I'll give you the the names of the people that killed Jesus, and then I'll go and just explain a little bit about each one of them. Um, The Romans, the Jews, the Father, you and me. Who killed Jesus? The Roman, the Jews, the Father, you and me. Um, The Romans technically nailed the nails through him, put him up on the cross, whipped him, jammed the spear into his side technically the Romans did that the Jews you remember at Jesus' trial right who should I release to you Barabbas or Jesus what should we do with Jesus what did they say crucify him, and then your blood be on your own heads. Oh, his blood be on us, fine. They invoked a curse on themselves, and they said, crucify him, right? And now, I'm sure every single person there wasn't probably going along with it, you know, but I mean, the majority of these people in Jerusalem at this time, of these Jews, they thought he was a blasphemer. They thought he was, uh, they were religiously convicted, you know, when they were saying crucify him because they thought he was a blasphemer. So the Jews had a part in it. The father now this is a very uncomfortable truth and this is getting pushed out of Christianity and this is, you know, people are not wanting to deal with this. Uh, polite people on a Sunday morning and their Sunday best looking, looking nice. But it says in Isaiah 53 verse 10 that it pleased the father to bruise him. You mean God the father was pleased to put his son on the cross? That's what the Bible says. What kind of a dad is that? Think through this. He's a dad that obviously loved the world a lot. There's a son that was willing to submit because he obviously loved you a lot. You know, there are, oh, I'm going to go on. Let me, let's just put it this way. That's an uncomfortable truth in 2022, but it's a It's reality. It pleased the father to bruise and mother translation say to crush him on him. Our iniquities were put. And that's the next point. You and me. Uh, It was for our transgressions that he died. Isaiah 53, five. It was for our transgressions that he died by his stripes. We are healed. We are forgiven of sin. The sin problem is dealt with because our transgressions were laid upon him. So, uh, if somebody says, well, who killed Jesus? It's a four-part answer. It's The Romans technically did it. The Jews handed him over, wanted him killed. God the Father was pleased to crush him because it affected salvation. It brought salvation. And, uh, and then you and I technically are the ones that, that put him there because he died for our sins. Next time you see a cross necklace, no matter how cutesy and ornate it looks, just think that I should be on there because that's the message of the cross is I should be there. right? And I want to add one more point. This is a bonus. Jesus was willing Do you remember when Abraham took Isaac to go sacrifice him? And Isaac was no doubt able to overpower his dad at that point. His dad was super old, you know? But Isaac was like, hey, dad, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And his dad, remember what he said? Oh, the Lord will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. But they both went. They both submitted and he gets down. Isaac obviously got down on the altar. It's a picture saying that the son was willing, you know? Jesus was willing, and they will kill him, the scripture says here in verse 23. And then the third day he'll be raised up, talking about the resurrection. Prophesied in the Old Testament, a couple places. You can make the correlation with Jonah. He was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. He was in the ground three days. He came out on the third day. Psalm 1610 says, You will not leave my soul in the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Prophecy about Jesus Christ's resurrection. How do we know it's a Prophecy. Acts chapter two, Peter's sermon. Peter says that that psalm is about Jesus not staying in the grave. So we know it's prophetic, not because somebody uh, you know else guessed it was, because Peter said it was. Right. That teaches us how to interpret prophecy. By the way, is how did New Testament people interpret Old Testament prophecy? Okay. Look at their response, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now. I can imagine that would be a that would be a tough statement. But it almost seems like did they not hear about the resurrection part of this? They're just exceedingly sorrowful. Did they only hear about the death? I mean, uh, the expectation of the Jews right then, you remember when Lazarus was, you know, they're waiting for Jesus to get there and Jesus shows up after Lazarus is already, you know, Right, And uh, so he smells, And Jesus said, you know, oh, you know, although he died, he'll live. And remember what his sister says? Yeah, I, I know, Lord, in the resurrection. Right? Because the Jews believed in a general resurrection of everybody, uh, every Jew after the church age. They believed that that was just coming and, and everybody was. And so that's why she was like, ah, uh, Lazarus is dead. But yeah, he'll, he'll live again in the resurrection. Right? You guys familiar with that? Okay. Now, he, here, Maybe they have that same thing. They probably do. And when Jesus says he'll rise again, they're just thinking, oh, yeah, in the resurrection, we all will. They're not hearing the, like, in three days, you know, the grave will not hold me. Victory over death, I'm bringing you with. Like, they don't understand that, right? They heard this amazing truth of the gospel in a way that their presuppositions limited now, this had me going this week because I know a lot of Christians that you say, hey, Jesus, Christianity, right? You're following the Lord. And they're like, yeah, Jesus died for my sin, and I'm going to heaven. Okay. You know about the death part, but you don't know about the I'm coming alive part, right? And there's a lot of Christians that live like that today. Like, they, they, they know they have this presupposition, oh, Jesus died for my sin, I'm going to heaven. Okay. Well, there's more to that though. There's this whole new life that starts the second you say yes to Jesus. There's this whole new thing. But because of their presuppositions, because of what they thought the Bible said, they didn't hear what was really being said. And I might want to suggest today that maybe somebody, maybe we're held back a little bit because we're not hearing the whole thing because we've just got kind of this like, you know, I've been walking with the Lord since Sunday school. Well, and what you heard in Sunday school, if that's still your working theology today, I mean, you got to get in the word. You got to let the word like speak to you and you got to do your best to say, Lord, clear out all my presuppositions. I want to hear what you're saying, you know. I don't want to hear Jesus died for my sins and I'm going to heaven and that, that, that's very important. That's super important, but that's not all of it, you know. And so that made me think of that when I read that, you know, it's like they're exceedingly sorrowful, but you'd think it would say they were sorrowful, but yet they're hopeful, you know, if they would have heard the whole story, right? Because they know about the resurrection life. They know that the death won't hold him and the grave won't hold them either. And all those beautiful things that come along with that. Main idea, of the first point, Jesus reminds his disciples of the coming death and resurrection. It's good to be reminded of the cross and resurrection for many reasons. I'll give you a few. It takes time for the meaning to sink in. It really does. You need to preach this gospel of, the Je- of Jesus Christ, of the cross, to yourself all the time. You need to keep reminding yourself of this because it, it changes. This is where we grow as Christians, is by uh, you know, having this cross at the very center of our lives and thinking about the gospel. Um, here's another reason it's good to be reminded of the cross, okay, is because as humans, we want to intellectualize all this stuff. We really do. And, and especially the more time goes on and the more information we have and the more smartphones we have, because we get smarter with smartphones and, you know, so the smarter we are, you know, the more info that's coming, we've got more, uh, we're so intellectual that we hear this weird message about this guy dying on a cross. And the next thing, you know, we're trying to say, maybe it's just a metaphor, Maybe, uh, you know, and then so then this whole branch of Christianity is coming out called progressive Christianity. And I don't know if you've ever heard of progressive Christianity. If you're familiar with Elisa Childers, she wrote a book called Another Gospel. Quite a few people that are noticing this intellectualizing of the faith. Let me read a quote. I read an article about the cross from a progressive Christian author. And this is what they say. And just, just hear it. He says this the cross is anything that we think will save us, but crucifies us instead. The cross is anything in which we put our ultimate trust and faith and hope, which in turn betrays us. What? You know? Uh. So we need to be reminded of what the cross really is over and over again because there's this part of all of us in here, this human intellect that wants to be prideful and wise. Why do you think, remember remember part of the reason Eve ate the fruit? Because the fruit looked good, because it was good for food and because of what? because it would make one wise. And the devil knows that there's this part inside of our human pride that wants to be wise. And we get in a room full of intellectual people that are saying, oh, the cross, well, literally what it is is a metaphor, and they've got all this other stuff, and you're in there saying, no, I believe that a man literally died on a cross, and somehow or another, I don't know quite how it works, but my sin went on him, and by faith in him, I'm forgiven and I won't go to hell now because of that. And all of a sudden you look like this, like, oh, jeez, you know, oh my goodness. And, but all of us have that internal desire to fit in and be wise with people. So you need to be reminded of the cross and you need, to, you need to tell the Lord, I need help with this, you know, because in the right circumstances around the right thing, maybe I would start, you know, you know. So I don't like to look at the progressive Christians and say, oh, what I like to do is when I see the sinful stuff of other people, I, I just say, this is in me too. This is in me too. And if it's not for God's grace, um, I would drift too. And so it's not a matter of like, we're better than it, you know, nothing like that. It's like, oh my God, please help me that I don't go down these paths of people that become uncomfortable by, by what you say, what you say plainly. So we need to be reminded because we intellectualize it. Also the cross humbles me. It rebukes my arrogant pride. I mean, it really does. I get to start to think that I'm something that I'm not. I get to think too highly of myself, you know? Which you can't do that in 2022, according to psychologists. You can't think highly enough of yourself. But that's not true. Next to God, I need to understand who I am. I need to know my place next to Him. I need to know that He's called me to be a servant. I need to be humbled. And the cross does that. I need to be reminded of the resurrection so you don't think that this life is it. You know, there's, there's so many benefits of the resurrection. Okay, moving on. Here comes an attempt to discredit Jesus. So that's the first thing, need to be reminded of the gospel. Second, we need to be reminded that we are citizens of earth and heaven. I'm going to read the whole thing here, and then we'll go back and look at some pieces of it. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Hmm, this is weird, right? Let's go fishing with Jesus. So when they'd come to Capernaum, this is where Peter's house uh, was. Archaeologists have discovered what they believed to be the ruins. And those who received the temple tax came. Now, these are not tax collectors for the Roman government. These are representatives of the temple in Jerusalem, these are Jews that are going out collecting the temple tax off of every male Jew, and they did this once a year. The tax at this time was a subject of great debate. The Qumran community, the Essenes, like they believe John the Baptist was part of this community. The Qumran community, by the way, is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, this Qumran community, this is a different sect of Jews. They paid this tax once in their life, and they were like, we're not paying that anymore. The Sadducees, disapproved of the tax altogether. The Orthodox took this as a sign that you were a patriot of Judaism. This is, you're showing your, Jude, you know, your Jewish, your Israel patriotism by paying the tax. This tax was not part of the law of Moses. This was not part of the Roman government. This was a cultural norm that showed your allegiance to you know, the, the power of Israel, the whole, um, you know, the nation. <sighs> That's what you have to understand in this section is they're trying to discredit Jesus by saying, you know, they're trying to make him look like he's not a patriot, like he's not for Israel. Now, this is a cultural norm. And again, it's important to understand he wasn't obligated to pay this tax. Nobody, uh, none of them were. Peter says, yes, he does pay the tax. Um, Must have seen him pay it before, I guess. He's referring to another time. Now, he goes into the house, and it says that Jesus anticipated him, saying, what do you think, Simon? Now, I'm not sure how Jesus anticipated. Did Jesus, you know, did he overhear what was going outside? Did he just have the word of knowledge, you know? So Peter comes in, and Jesus is anticipating him, and he asks this question. And he's going to teach him a lesson, kind of about being citizens of Earth and Heaven, sort of. Verse twenty-five says, uh, "For whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers?" Peter knew the answer: from strangers. So here comes this teaching moment. See, kings would not collect taxes from their sons. Their sons would benefit actually from the taxes. So kings would not collect taxes from their sons. This was a Common knowledge at this time. So, therefore, as the Son of God, they're collecting taxes for the temple. Therefore, as the Son of God, Jesus is exempt. And by extension, everybody that's adopted into his family is exempt. So the disciples and Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, we're not obligated to pay this tax. As far as your heavenly citizenship goes, you know, as far as, you know, what your status is in, you know, in Christ and who you are, this is a cultural norm. You're not obligated to pay this thing. That's what he's saying. So why would Jesus condescend to pay this tax to these corrupt rulers if he wasn't obligated to pay this tax? Well, it tells you right there. You don't even have to guess. Verse 27, Nevertheless, lest we offend them. Notice Jesus' attitude towards the corrupt religious authorities. He doesn't want to offend them. Jesus does not want to stumble them. The word offend is scandalized. It means to put a stumbling block in front of somebody else. Jesus looks at this cultural norm and he says, you know, I'm really here on this mission of preaching the gospel and I want people to get saved. So I don't want to go offend people unnecessarily with things that are not that big of a deal. So he says, verse 27, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first and uh, you'll open its mouth, there'll be a piece of money in there. I don't know how that worked out. Did God know that there was a fish that like years ago had swallowed a coin and here comes this fish right at this right time? And I don't know. It's a, kind, of a, kind of a useless debate when you speculate about things in the Bible like that. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is it's miraculous. Um, and um, interesting. Just an interesting aside. note is like it's not common to fish with hooks. Uh, fishermen would fish with nets and that time you've seen them clear their nets a bunch of time archaeologists Italian archaeologists um, not that it matters that they're Italian but whatever they uh, discovered the ruins of Peter's house and they found a, pi- a fish hook there and so they're like oh is it the same hook you know I mean it's probably not. but just interesting archaeology lines up with the things that are in the Bible and it's cool Cool way of paying the tax, right? It was a lot of money, too, the, the tax that they collected. It was it was sizable, and apparently they didn't have the money, and so Jesus sends Peter down and goes and grabs a fish and opens his mouth, and the coin comes out, and, and there you go. So some see a lesson of God's provision there. I think that's kind of imposing it on the text, you know, saying it's like, oh, if you're going to serve the Lord, just don't worry, he'll always provide, and, you know, stuff. I, I don't know if that's the lesson there. That's true about God, um, but... I don't know if that's a lesson there. I think the the main lesson there is verse 27. Nevertheless, lest we offend them. Because I think the main lesson is about being a citizen of kingdom, uh, you know, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth at the same time. Because we wrestle with that. Are there some cultural norms that we should stand up against? Yeah, abortion, you know, uh, different things like that. Some cultural norms that we should definitely stand up against. But are there some that maybe Christians should stop being so offensive about because they're actually kind of, you know, killing their witness? Maybe so. Maybe that even happens in your own house. Maybe nobody wants to hear about Jesus Christ because of how you are at family gatherings. You know what I mean? Could be. I was that guy. <laughs> you know, like I don't even talk about it. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's like, uh, is that Adam calling? Oh, geez, here we go. He's going to talk about sin and stuff like that. and uh, You need Jesus. <laughs> okay, I'll give you a story. Uh, one time I was ministering at a church. Okay. And um, I was going to lead this Saturday night service and it was going to be a contemporary service in an old school sort of church. And they said, you could do what you want, you know, just you're young and you've, you've got to go on. And, and so, so the first thing I do is I go in and I'm all excited. And I notice on one side of the stage, there's an American flag and the other one, there's an Iowa flag. First thing we got to do is we got to take these flags out of here because this is about the kingdom of heaven. This isn't about the kingdom of man. And so I take the flags down and set them on the ground and they're touching the ground and all, all this stuff like that, kind of haphazardly. I didn't know. I didn't, I mean, I didn't, it's a piece of cloth and, you know, I get it. Um, but, you know, and I, you know, and the, the elder board had a huge problem with this stuff, you know. And it, and it was like, hey, Adam, you know, the, it's, it's, I should have just not done that, you know. I should have just not done that because here I am trying to share the gospel, teach the word, all this stuff. And then, and then there are people in there the whole time that are just like, Oh, my gosh! I can't believe what he just did. You know It's a cultural norm, you know, and um, I should have had more respect for that in retrospect, you know what I mean, Rather than being like, oh, you need to rip down all the idols you know and all this you know this, Maybe it's true. Can you make an idol out of the flag? Sure, Patriotism is not Christian, Sure enough, you know but, but if I want you to hear about the gospel, which hill am I going to die on here? And that's a lesson for Christians. You, you just don't die on every hill, right? You know what I mean? Uh, politics, like, okay. If you are vocal, oh my goodness, if you're vocal about your political stuff, you are closing the door to everybody that doesn't agree with you for the gospel. You might have a problem with me that will never bring politics into this church, but I will never do it because I want everybody here to hear about Jesus Christ. And Christians die on the wrong hills all the time. And it's easier just to balk off, oh, I'm not, blah, 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 blah. and you create this wall and people get around, they don't even want to come around you, you know? And that's no way to be, that's, that's not a way to be. And Jesus says, nevertheless, lest we offend them over something stupid, let's just like be cool to them, you know? And, and, and just do this, you know? There's another example of it. Paul, one time he has a guy circumcised, but then he doesn't have another guy circumcised and he raises a huge deal about it. You know that's your homework. You can figure that out and why that happened. (sighs) Okay, so that being said, there are things that we're going to wrap it up here at this last point. Is there there are things that necessarily need to offend people? Okay, as a Christian, and it's good I think for us to be able to determine which ones we should, which hills we should die on, which ones we shouldn't. The gospel is a necessary offense. The gospel, the elements of the gospel, the the truth about the cross, the truth about who Christ is, what he came to do, how he did it, the truth of the word of God is is a hill that's worth dying on. And it's offensive. And I'm going to give you a few reasons. And the the reason for me giving these to you is because I want to equip you as Christians. I want to equip all of us because the pressure to become more intellectual and more, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word liberal because I don't want you to think I'm talking about politics, but just to kind of intellectualize the faith and kind of turn it into self-help. All this pressure is on all of us. So I want to remind you that there are a few things about the gospel that are incredibly offensive to people. And you'll leave here today, maybe thinking, you know, I need to stand on these things because these are the truth, even if it's uncomfortable. First of all, the gospel says you're a sinner. Okay. The gospel says you are a sinner. Romans 3, 23. We've all fallen, uh, all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. People are offended that they get called out in their immorality they are offended. When you tell somebody that they're a sinner, that they're lustful, that they're, that they lie and that these things are a big deal to God. um, When you, when you tell them that their lifestyle is displeasing to God, you know, their sexual preferences, whatever it might be, their sex outside of marriage, whatever the thing is, you tell people that this is displeasing, it's sinful to God and it's offensive to them. Okay. It's also offensive because it tells you that sin isn't this whole, like, nobody's perfect, you know, we all kind of make mistakes. No, sin is an offense against the holy, righteous God that warrants, you know, punishment is what God says. That's offensive to people. So the first part of the gospel is just offensive because it convicts you of your sin. It says that you have a problem, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the lust, the sexual stuff, all that stuff is a problem. You've broken God's laws and you're under his judgment because of that, right? That's offensive to my pride. I don't want to be told that. Now, the second thing that the gospel tells us that's offensive, that the cross tells us that's offensive, is that you deserve death. You know, God told Adam and Eve, he said, the day that you eat this tree, you will surely go to counseling and get told that you just made a mistake and it's your neighborhood's fault and it's all nurture, it's not nature, And you know. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And so the cross, the gospel tells people that the penalty for sin is death and it's offensive. They don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear it either, if I'm honest. Next thing it says is you cannot fix yourself. And that's offensive. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You can't fix yourself. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not because you decided to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and put together a 10 step plan and you're doing better now and, and you know, you're achieving and believing and, and it's not because of you. It's bec- you cannot save yourself. You, there's nothing you could do to improve the situation you're born into spiritually. I um, was looking at this verse in Isaiah, talking about how you, know, you can't do anything to save yourself. There's this verse in Isaiah that says, and this is tough, man. It says, but we, all, we are all like an unclean thing, and our righteousness, righteousnesses are like filthy rags we are all an unclean thing and our works, another translation says, are as filthy rags. Um, if you have kids here, maybe you would cover their ears. Well, no. Okay. That Hebrew term where it says an unclean thing is saying a used feminine hygiene product. That's what that word says. So God says that our righteousnesses are that filthy in His sight? What does that mean? It's not saying that every good gesture you do and every good thing that you do—it's it, like it's not saying that you can't do anything good that's pleasing to God. Especially as a Christian, everything you do in Jesus' name is pleasing to God. Get that straight. And and God likes benevolence and charity and all these things. God God loves that stuff. You know, trust me. But but what this is saying is our righteousnesses. That means the works that we do that we think make us right with God, if we approach God and say, hey, God, I'm pretty good. I've never killed anybody. I've held the door for all kinds of old ladies at the store. I give to charity. I go to church. I do all that stuff. And if I present that to God and say, I don't need the cross because I've got all this good stuff that I do, so you should let me into heaven. I'm a pretty good person. God says that is like a used, couldn't be more filthy and disgusting. You didn't know that was in the Bible, Right? That's what God says when we approach him and we think that we deserve salvation. God would look back at you and say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Everything you think that you do that makes you righteous is actually as a filthy polluted garment before me. That's what the Bible says. This is not a a comfortable truth. I will tell you, this is so uncomfortable of a truth that I heard a pastor recently in a sermon convince try to convince all the young people at his 600 person church that you deserve salvation. And he says, I don't know why we deserve it. I can't figure it out why we deserve it. This was a week ago. Listen to this guy's sermon. He says, I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that we deserve salvation. Martin Luther says this, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. You can't do anything to save yourself. You need Jesus Christ. You want to try to save yourself? God says, here, it's a filthy rag. I don't want anything to do with that. You can't save yourself by your intellect either. That's good news for some. You don't get saved because you figure out everything about Christianity. You get saved because Christ saves you. That's, that's really a relief for a lot of people. You can't come to Christ by human intellect and wisdom. He has to do something to your body, to your mind, to your heart. He has to open you. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Something must be done for you. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had a fig leaf bikini. God had to kill an animal and give them clothing. See that picture? God had to make the sacrifice and clothe them, right? Um, Isaac, Abraham, God himself had to provide the lamb, right? In the Passover, you had to put the lamb over. Something has to be done for you. And people don't like to hear that. Nobody will do anything for me. Oh, well, okay. Well, I'll tell you what, man, something has to be done for you or you're not getting saved. (laughs) You have to drop that whole self-reliant pride thing. The gospel is also offensive because it says there's only one way to be saved. Jesus is in the way, the truth the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter if you sincerely follow some other faith. It doesn't matter. Jesus says there's one way. I want to add something to this, too. I'm not adding to the scripture. I want to add another point to this. Jesus says there's one way to be saved through him. And Paul adds to this, too, when he says there's only one gospel. Okay. In the book of Galatians, Paul says this, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again if anyone preaches another gospel to you than the one that you have received let him be accursed. Paul was dealing with the church that had added works to the gospel. He was dealing with the church that had insisted on sacraments as a way to be saved. And then so Paul says you are accursed. This is a very uncomfortable truth in 2010 because everybody's like, Well, I've got Catholic friends that believe you have to go through the Catholic Church to be saved. Paul would say, Let that system be accursed. There's no way around it. There's one way to be saved in Jesus Christ, and it's through grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not as a result of your works. You add one work to the gospel. Paul says you're anathema, right? You add door knocking with the guy with the tie. You add door knocking. It's not the gospel. You preach a different Jesus who's the brother of Satan like you know Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. These guys preach a different Jesus. It's not the same. And Paul says, let them be accursed if they bring this different gospel, if they bring a different Christ. Not a popular doctrine in 2022. You're going to be challenged with this. There are necessary offenses. <sighs> Many people today have this is the last point I'll make here is here's something that's offensive too. is that the gospel tells us that there is a God that judges, that punishes. That's not popular either because people will say, have you ever heard people say, well, the God I follow, the God I follow would never, they stumble over the old Testament. Like how could God have Joshua go in and just genocide all these Canaanites, all these pagans, They'll say that without, like, knowing anything about those cultures, too, by the way. They'll also say that while, they're sa- while they'll say, well, why is there evil in this world if there's a real God? And you say, so you've got a problem with evil? <laughs> yeah. Well, God judged evil and wiped out a whole bunch of Canaanites for their evil. Oh, I don't like that, though. You think God should do something about evil, but then when he does it, you, do you think that, he's, that God's got a genocide? Uh It's an uncomfortable truth that God judges sin. It's an uncomfortable truth that God punishes. Um, But, you know, when somebody starts off that sentence, when they say, the God that I believe, you know what they've done? They've broken the commandment to not create another God. They've created another God. And rather than make a statue, they've just made a, a statue in their mind. They've made a false God and they're committing the sin of idolatry. Many do this by suggesting there's a difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. It's idolatry. Jesus didn't mind offending people over the cross or over the gospel. For the sake of being offensive? No. His heart broke over the condition of people. God forbid that a Christian would like being offensive. You know? If the purpose of you standing on some truth is to isolate yourself and push the people that are bad away from you, you've got the wrong idea. You know, the purpose of me preaching a message like this isn't to say, oh man, we've got it right up here at Calvary. I'm so glad I go to this church and not to this other. you know, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to say every single one of us in here is susceptible from drifting from the truth of the gospel. If we're not careful, if we're not reminded of these things, we all have the potential to drift and we should be very concerned about the people that have uh, you know, already gone that way. Why did Jesus be offensive? Because God so loved the world. Why was he offensive? Because it's not the will, it, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel says, I don't have any, God says, I don't have any pleasure in the death of the one who dies. Christians sometimes think, yeah, all those people that are doing that bad stuff, get them, God. But God says, I don't have any pleasure in people, that di- people dying. I don't have any pleasure in that. So just a couple of words of application. Um, it's very simple. Maybe be less willing to be offensive over non-issues. Be less willing to be offensive over non-issues. And might I suggest just really think about how you approach politics. And and current events and all that stuff, because your views on the mark of the beast and the vaccines and all this other stuff like that, um, you might actually be causing a stumbling block, you know, in people's life. Uh, just think about it, just pray about it. Pray about if your approach to all these different things is godly. Be more willing, though, so less willing there, and then be more willing though to let the gospel be offensive, you know, not for the sake of offending people, but just be more willing to stand on the basic, simple truths of Jesus Christ. And, and, you know, don't be ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. And that's my final word to us as believers. You better be prepared to stand firm. I mean, the, end, the Bible says in end times, there's going to be a great falling away. And it, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be a lot of religious, churchy stuff going on in end times. It means that there's going to be a church that looks like it's active, but really it's dead, you know, and it's because people are going to turn from the true and living Christ and the true gospel of Jesus Christ to their own creations. So be prepared to stand firm. So heavenly father, thank you for your word here today and thank you for the gospel and Lord help us to be faithful witnesses unto you. I thank you Lord that you, um, that you love us enough, Lord, to tell us and, and to bring this amazing message that if anybody will receive and believe in you, that, that they'll be saved. And so, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.